0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here today on New Books in German Studies and New Books Urban and New Books History with my guest, Professor Kristen Poling. Thanks, Kristen, for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So a little bit about our uh, historian and and author today. Uh, Dr. Kristen Poling is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Michigan-Dearborn where she teaches modern European and global history and received the 2021 Distinguished Teaching Award. Her research spans the urban and environmental histories of Germany and the United States, including recent projects on German-American forestry in Michigan and working class uses of nature on the periphery of Imperial Berlin. We'll be talking today about her new book, Called Germany's Urban Frontiers: Nature and History on the Edge of the 19th Century City, published with University of Pittsburgh Press, 2020. So I want to start right away uh, with my lineup of questions, and I always love to ask uh, historians um, with their first books what what motivated you, what brought you to this topic.
1: Yeah, thank you. I I love answering this question because it was a um a kind of long twisty path that got me to this topic. Um because my my interest actually began with my fascination with the Berlin Wall um in uh in the 1980s and kind of um the Berlin Wall was for I think many people in my generation this kind of um I don't know this this image this metaphor that kind of ruled over my young childhood and in graduate school one of my first research projects was on highway revolts in west berlin in the 1980s and i just became really interested in how borders and physical borders shaped other discourses over space and nature and environment in the city and how the berlin wall which was this quintessentially kind of unnatural concrete structure became a space for what we might today call, you know, like guerrilla gardening and these other um, kind of unusual uses of space and room for nature and spontaneity in the city. And it was actually kind of the apparent anachronism of the wall that provided space for other kinds of protest. Um, so, I, you know, I was I was looking into how Berliners use the wall to tell different kinds of stories about place and history. And I discovered a fact um, well known to historians of Berlin, but really surprising to me at the time, which was that the 20th century Berlin Wall overlapped for a stretch with the historical 19th century Berlin tax wall. And this was a fact that was not unnoted by Berliners at the time, right? So you see, um, especially in East Berlin, people say, well, of course there's a wall here, right? Like there was always a wall here. This is a natural border. And this got me thinking about these sort of spatial echoes through time and kind of sent me to the city archives and the newspaper archives to discover what I could find about the 19th century Berlin Wall that had been taken down. And then kind of by happenstance, I sort of discovered these surprising echoes um, that, you know, weren't a story in themselves, but kind of got me hooked um, uh, looking at borders in the 19th century.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think about Berlin a lot, um, Kristen, and, and I, I kind of wonder what what led you first to Berlin and then to choose the other cities. Mm-hmm. So w- would you mind telling our um, listeners and, and readers of your book what cities you chose and why?
1: yeah sure so um uh, I think one of one of the things that I found really fascinating about Berlin to start with as someone who grew up in the American midwest was the way it kind of wears its history and its changing past kind of out in the open, right? So I grew up in these landscapes of the American Midwest where the history is kind of erased, right? Like we build infrastructure and then we tear it down again, right? And it's very hard to read um, the history of a space of a city into its landscape. And so um, uh, Berlin and, um, you know, a lot of Central European cities kind of wear their historical kind of processes of change out in the open. Um, So I started looking at Berlin, that was kind of my starting point. And then I circled out, I wanted um, to tell um, a story uh, that, um, that, that allowed me to get at lots of different themes and the kind of variety of experiences of urban space in 19th century Germany. Um, so I started by looking for kind of different kinds of cities. I wanted a city that had an identity primarily as a market city, which took me eventually to the city of Leipzig, um, where I did a lot of my research. Um, I wanted a city that was a sort of smaller state capital, um, so which took me um, to the city of Oldenburg. I Cities that were in different kinds of environments, right? Um, That were in forested environments and river environments in the bogs and marshes of. of Northwest Germany and and so on. So I wanted to look at regional variety. I wanted to look at a variety of sizes of cities. Um, so I started with a much longer list and I kind of narrowed it down um, by looking at, you know, what sources were available and how I was allowed or how I was able to kind of look at different themes through a selection of case studies.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you find um so many rich sources. I think, and and I'm really grateful that there's a bibliography with with your sources and files from, you know, from Potterborn as well, uh, from the Landesarchiv in 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 Nordrhein-Westfalen. Um, really, just an incredible list of of sources. Is there a book or or set of books that inspired you to? to choose the topic? Was it, was it secondary literature? I know you have David Blackburn a lot, but, um, was there any sort of particular book or set of books that, that got you interested in this as a topic in German studies?
1: Um, yeah, let's see. I mean, I think, um, uh, some of the, um, early starting points for my interest in this topic, I mean, I think really important for me was the work, um, of absolute classic of Mac Walker, um, and not just his work on German hometowns, um, where what really fascinated me about his approach to space there was, um, was I think what he calls urban prosopography, where he does this kind of collective biography of different cities, Um, and more so than his actual arguments, that kind of technique of prosopography for urban space, right, was really fascinating to me. Um, And also really important for me was his other, um, I think unfairly less read and remembered book on um, German migration and the way that the imagined collective experience of uh, overseas Immigration shaped German consciousness in the 19th century. So those two books together um, sort of uh, helped provide some of the structure for how I thought um, about this um, about this project. Um, though I ended up wanting to tell. Um, You know, I I sort of started by envisioning my book as having a similar kind of prosopographical (laughs) approach, and I ended up um, deciding that what was really interesting and what was important was how stories of um, urban growth uh, were so um, just inextricably embedded in their local environments and circumstances. So I stayed more kind of grounded in my local case studies um, than, than, say, Walker's approach.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I want to come back and, and ask you about some of your your big arguments and, and takeaway points um, in the book. I, I love this idea of, of prosopography, you know, biographies of, of cities, which are not no places, but actual places, and everyone has a story. Um, so what, I, what particularly strikes me is the early modern to modern um, transformation. I guess you could call it growth, but it's not exactly linear progress. Um, could could you talk a little bit about this defortification um, notion? And, and I especially see this in the case of Leipzig. What does that mean? Like, what does it mean in Saxony? But but what does it mean for for any German city? How how did that take place?
1: Yeah. So um, generally, you. Know- So I look at the process by which cities lost their built and visible borders, and usually the first step of this for Central European cities was the removal of what had been military fortifications, at least over a certain size. Um, So these were not just walls, but also moats and ramparts that surrounded cities Uh, And often began to be neglected early in the 18th century uh, as they became more, more obsolete as military defenses, but also just kind of too expensive to maintain. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this was a new kind of space um, on the edge of the city, these kind of (laughs) um, semi-neglected walls and ramparts um, and moats, which were often um, turned over to other uses, to housing, to craft workshop or to market use um, and so on. And then plans for how to use those spaces um, or transform them uh, differed in their timing uh, and their use by city. Um, in Leipzig, as in many cities, um, spaces along old fortifications were first—you um, uh, know—they they were first used for for promenades, for green spaces. Um, mm-hmm. They were turned over to recreational space, um, and then later um, filled in or eliminated. This is usually, I find, um, kind of what people think of when they think of removing the city wall was the defortification of the city, right? Because these were big walls, big structures that created really lasting um, traces in the, you know, street plans, the layouts of the city. But when city fortifications removed, that didn't mean we were left with an open city, right? So when Leipzig took down its fortifications, um, it still had a city wall. It still closed its gates at night. Um, Leipzigers still thought of the city as a closed space where they could identify its boundary. And one of the things I really wanted to do was to... um, uh, to kind of um to, to investigate that transitional time, right? After city fortifications were taken down, but before the city had lost its sort of boundedness as a space before, say, Leipzigers um, had lost touch with the idea that they should be able to see and know where the edge of their city was. Uh, and this was a time when there were, you know, things like tax walls, tax boundaries, um, and other um, kinds of boundaries, which we've largely forgotten because they didn't leave the same kinds of traces in the urban landscape, the streetscape that fortifications did.
0: hmm um, I, I wonder, you know, since this is such a classic German theme of, of Grenzen and, and borders, um, that the working idea of really the frontier—how do you translate it? You know, is it is it open? Is it closed? Is the line dotted or bold or invisible? And, and I love, you know, how you play in many ways with the flexibility of this meaning. Um, could could you possibly? Give us maybe your understanding, I'm sorry to pin, pin, pin this down, but what would be your working understanding of, of Grenson of, of borders? Did you have an idea of how you were going to approach this in, in writing your five chapters?
1: Yeah, so so part of um, I think my method was to look at different kinds of borders and to see them as connected. Um, through the eyes of my primary source authors, that is not to treat, say, fortifications as separate from the financial or tax boundaries of the city, as separate from the administrative boundaries of the city, but to see them as connected, because that's how people saw them at the time, right? And what I found is that that the idea of a kind of border of the city um, has been, you know, kind of dissolved by uh, its um, importance across different subfields, right? So we think about, say, the fortifications of the city or the tax border of the city or the administrative boundaries or infrastructural boundaries of the city, and these are all treated in kind of different ways, Um, and they – disappeared and changed um, at different rates and through different processes but 19th century German urbanites you know saw echoes of the fortifications when they thought about infrastructural changes to the border of the city even 50 years after the walls had disappeared right so um, my concept of the border of the city was really to look at these different um, kinds of spatial boundaries um, together with each other because I thought Thought that reflected the experience of the city in the 19th century.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and do you find it different by regions and, and how? I guess this is kind of an innocent question, but for those who are, who are not specialists in German history, um, I mean, how do you find, let's say, the, the site or the vision or even kind of panoramic vision of city officials differing between Prussia? Saxony, Westphalia. Um, I guess there are many other examples you could sort of um, multiply with this. But, um, you know, since you did spend a a lot of time with a kind of deep dive into city archives, I'm I'm wondering if if you could describe that a little bit.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, this was one of the most um, interesting things, I think, um, that I didn't necessarily know I was going to find, but that developed over the course of my research. That is, I started with um, these kinds of sources that I expected to be more similar across cities, right? So I started not knowing much, going to an archive in, you know, Oldenburg or Leipzig, and just looking for the document series on city gates, on the removal of the city wall, on the decisions to open the city gates. Um, And I started, started um, just, you know, kind of reading through and um, uh, looking at the language that city officials used to talk about the city border and these decisions about, you know, like when in Oldenburg was the right time to eliminate the nightly closure of the city gates. Um, And what I found is that Uh, you know, these highly kind of practical and local decisions were framed by um, these really kind of abstract um, concerns, right? So city officials in Oldenburg, um, when they decide to open their city gates, the decision largely revolves around questions of um, what does it mean to be modern? How do we make it clear that Oldenburg has become a modern city over the last centuries, right? Well, we want to heighten this contrast between the medieval fortified city and modern open Oldenburg so we are going to open our gates right and it's about establishing a modern identity for the city um and then um uh, another kind of really interesting thing I found is the ways in which local landscapes really um shaped the language used and the the kind of structures used to understand the the growth of the city as well so to take the example of Oldenburg again um which, you know, is in this uh, landscape of um, marsh and moorland in northwestern Germany, um, really uh, language of water control, of diking, of canalization, right? These are the metaphors that are used to understand the borders of the city, right? The borders of the city are actually kind of imbricated into these regional landscapes of water control. Um, similarly, you know, not similar, but in Berlin, right, the the, um, the language is really that of what is the relationship between the capital and, um, you know, first Prussia and then the German empire, right? Um, and it's sort of thinking about the suburban landscape of Berlin as analogous to the broader frontier of the German empire, right? So these, the, the sort of images and, um, uh, metaphors used to understand the expansion of the city down to these very um kind of you know workaday city council documents right yeah. um, it is, is is kind of in there it kind of came out of my sources
0: i i, I had some questions for you about those yeah. you know um we can talk taxes i guess and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and reports because you know i again like you mentioned you're mentioning canals and and wetlands and i think about the differences between cities mostly enclosed by walls, you know, like Bielefeld would be a good example of this, right? Mostly yeah. enclosed. And then there's wetlands and wet moats, and you kind of have to work through it and around it. You know, could you say a few words maybe about the, the tone, first of all, and, and then kind of like the actual content for these um, planners and developers from the 1840s? onward i mean what what were some examples or maybe even some individual cases that that struck you
1: um yeah so, so some individual case of pe- people who are talking about um or, or working on the expansion of the city and the kinds of um yeah, ways they talk I'm, about it yeah yeah um yeah absolutely um so uh l- let's see um uh I guess the first thing that comes in into mind is, is again, um, from Oldenburg and to look at, um, for example, how also questions of immigration and overseas migration really shaped decisions about expanding um, the city. So there were these um you know, reformers, um, like Ludwig Starkloff, um, a kind of bureaucrat, um, <laughs> who, who advocated, he was kind of a passionate advocate for canalization, um, as part of the, um, modernization of both the city and, um, the kind of broader landscape of Oldenburg or people like Otto Lazius who thought that the modernization of the, um, uh, the Oldenburg was going to compete um, to, to sort of keep people from migrating abroad, right? Like you really saw an expanded Oldenburg as in kind of competition as a space with um, overseas spaces that might otherwise draw um, Germans away. Um, so.
0: Yeah. And, and I guess this was my question about taxes, just to be more specific, because, you know, I mean, there there is a kind of, liberal moment, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in a lot of the journals that you see in Prussia and maybe Westphalia, um, there's the Zolverein, right? The, the customs union where that begins in, in 1834. I mean, can you give us a kind of a comparison contrast with some of your cities on how, you know, the, Im- the impact of these taxes, what, what were they, what was the Prussian tax code? How did people challenge it? You know, what were the revisions to it?
1: Yeah, sure. So so there were these taxes um, that were exacted at the city border on meat and grain, which played a really big role, actually, in defining the edge of the city, Um, uh, you know, especially. Uh, kind of from the the, the 1820s up through the 1840s for a lot of cities and then even into the um, 1860s and 70s for other cities. Um, And the, you know, this was really a a tax that was um, founded on the idea that urban and rural spaces were different kinds of spaces of production, right? So these were um, taxes exacted on any grain or meat or heads of cattle that entered the city, And they were um, perceived as being kind of anachronistic from the very beginning, and were a target of um, uh, protest um, throughout Prussia um, in the uh, 1840s. And and cities, um, kind of, you know, selectively, individually, um, were exempted um, from those taxes uh, one by one. So I look at the case of Potterborn in in my book, for example. Um, and then uh, there were a few very large cities that kept these taxes um, up through the 1860s. And Berlin is an example of this. So the, the um, right. tax on grain and meat was um, preserved until the 1860s in Berlin. Uh, and this began became, you know, increasingly it seemed sort of out of step um, with uh, the very character of a metropolis. It was also impractical. It meant you had a lot of um, kind of stink and mess at gates Uh um, uh, and traffic. Um, And so it became a kind of symbol of backwardness of the overreaching of Prussian administrative power um, into the city. Um, And uh, there are a number of these kind of pamphlets and, um, you know, written against um, the 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 taxes, um, in, in the
0: 1860s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm really persuaded by that, Kristen. And I, I mean, I love the chapter that you have taxing the urban border. Um, because I think it made me think about at least in reflecting on, on urban borders and where they end and where they begin on what taxes at city gates mean. Right. So if you've got, you know, if you've got a customs union, at least theoretically, it, it, I guess should be open, but, you know, 1848 comes along and then, you know, there there are some major changes. Um, I, I guess, you know, if you could talk a little bit about what it means for the building and then destruction of walls, like the decaying walls, the fortifications, even some of the wetlands and moats that are still there. Is there a sort of major like turning point i'm not going into the, in the zonderweg direction but it is is there is there a turning point that happens in the mindset for for a lot of your planners and builders and ultimately boosters in these you know sort of worlds of growth
1: Yeah, so this is really interesting, because I think what happens um, in the discussion in the 1840s is that the city wall and the city gate in particular becomes kind of metaphorically connected with all these other kinds of boundaries, and in a way with questions also of German unification. Um, so you see this language where, um, you know, you have the the kind of old-fashioned, usually bumbling, often drunk in the, the kind of um, <laughs> cartoonish version, right, gatekeeper, right, <laughs> who's standing there, ineffective, um, but trying to stand in the way of progress, which is represented by German unification and by the railroad, right? <laughs> so you've got gatekeeper versus the railroad. And what this actually does, and this is a really powerful image, and you see it a lot um, in the 1840s. However, it really overstates the significance of the the tax wall, and it demonstrates how important the wall is as a metaphor rather than as an actual spatial boundary. Um, So if we take the the example of of Paderborn, which I look at in um, a relatively small city um, in that chapter on taxing the urban border, you know the, the the train station is built far outside of the historic center of the city, outside of the um, of where the the wall and actually is. Um, the wall itself is not particularly wide. It's not a very cumbersome structure. When people want to get through it, <laughs> you know, they they just kind of knock holes in it, right? Like it's it's not really a big deal. You know, they they kind of, you know, it's already crumbling. They just kind of pick their way through, right? It it's not actually that important a physical structure, but when looked at in the context of the growth of Prussian power, the intervention of Prussian power into local cities and affairs, Um, These questions of modernization, right? Is Potterborn a growing city? Potterborn, this tiny little place, but does it also participate in urban modernity or is it this kind of backwater, right? These big questions give this rather insignificant physical structure a new kind of significance. uh, in, in that, that brings these, these big questions to local environments, especially, um, sort of from the 1840s through the, in in the 1880s when the wall finally, mostly kind of comes down.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, Paderborn is such a, a great example. I, I... I mean, I love the example of this because so many things happen there. Given its scale and its size, you've got the chol- you've got the cholera epidemic. You have a kind of mentality, or maybe even a stereotype of Paderborn as a site for for democracy, or at least tending toward democracy. And and I guess you know that leads me to the the bigger questions I would I would ask of any European historian in the mid nineteenth century, which is about the kind of Hausmanization projects and. And maybe in some ways, the reduction of this conquest of nature idea to, to rationalization and, and modernity. I mean, how do you see this working out, especially because you're paying attention to environment and landscape and, and freedom of movement, relatively speaking, you know, going in, going out of the city? Um, do you see these rationalization projects as, as very top down to the point where they're Eliminating people from from participating in in housing or participating in, in the sort of tax base to the city. I mean, how do you begin to read that through your sources?
1: Yeah, this is really and this is a topic I found really fascinating in um, in looking at these. Maybe cities that are a little less studied, like Oldenburg or Potterborn, um, which is the way you see these echoes of, say, Hausmanization in Paris or um, the construction of the the Ringstrasse in Vienna, right? And these questions of, well, can Oldenburg have a have a a grand ring boulevard like Vienna does? Can we have Hausmanization in Oldenburg, right? Um, so city planners and developers do think in those terms, right? They they compare even smaller and regional um, cities and capitals to Europe's great um, capitals as well. Um, however, as you as your question kind of implies, it, it's a it's a lot more um, kind of complex, right? It never it never really um, uh, you know. Um, works out that clearly and what happens right away is that um these schemes come into contact with the kind of local peculiarities uh and histories and characters of those um of those cities right so in oldenburg this question of what (laughs) what does um uh what does it looked like um, to have a rationally planned city um, when you have all of these natural limits on um, the the growth of your of your city, right? So, you know, expanding the city becomes also a project of moorland reclamation, which shapes the the outline of the city, um, for example.
0: Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm wondering, Chris, if 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 these city planners, I mean, have this great chapter on shanty towns as well, and and I want to ask you more about that. If the city planners had an idea of what the ideal population should be, right? Because we're you know we're still dealing with scale. Not every German city is is going to surpass its provincialism, and both in terms of space and in terms of people, not not less you know infrastructure as well. So. I mean, did you find in digging through the the city archives that they had an idea of how far particular cities should should build, should expand themselves outward?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, there were these um, there were different visions. I mean, one of the advantages, I think of looking, really focusing on this moment in the mid-19th century is that, you know, there was already such dramatic urban growth in so many cities throughout um, Germany, but at the same time, it wasn't yet clear to a lot of observers at the time um, what the kind of outlines of the modern city would look like. So there were different visions for what the future city, um, what shape the future city would take. Uh, And there were also anxieties about... Um, kind of uh, out of control growth about a city that had grown too large and it's definitely true in Berlin where you have on the one hand these kind of euphoric boosterist visions of a Berlin which grows to encompass all of Germany right <laughs> where the suburbs of Berlin merge with the suburbs of Dresden and you know <laughs> urban growth becomes tantamount with national unification right so um, that vision is is one side of it, but the other side of it is anxiety, about um, a berlin that grows too much and that also sees that growth as tantamount to losing what makes germany distinct which is its landscape of many small and independent towns uh, and this you know this conflict which is really over the nature of the empire and about um, the federal nature of the german empire um, also plays a role in conversations over urban planning um, and berlin's growth in the 1860s and 70s um
0: mm-hmm.
1: so uh,
0: yeah were, were there were there particular individuals and, and by that I mean planners or mappers you know who who saw shanty towns as is desirable or undesirable I mean who who were your people I guess um, and, and I think here you know lasting contrast through the 19th century like the Saxon conservatives who don't want Leipzig or Dresden to be Berlin um, because it's Saxony, right? I mean, who who are these people, I guess? What what sort of, you know, roles did they play? You've got officials, you have art historians, you know, you have a lot of others who, who might be described as, as activists, economists. Um, where, where do they see this, the line or the Shantytown frontier, as you described so well?
1: Yeah. I mean, and in Berlin, right. So there were, um, you know, after the um, foundation of the German empire in 1871, there was this extraordinary um, rapid growth and housing crisis uh, in Berlin that created these um, kind of boom town uh, shanty towns around the edge of the city. Uh, And these shanty towns were interpreted by observers um, either as a kind of housing crisis and a moral crisis um, mm-hmm. for Berlin and for Germany, or as evidence of the kind of health and um, vibrancy of German economy and, and sort of seen analogous to uh, the American frontier, right? That Germany kind of had its own um, urban frontier spaces. Uh, and these, um, you know, working class Berliners who were, you know, Sort of casting aside the um, the restrictiveness and the dankness of Berlin apartment buildings to go out on the edge of the city and build their own shanties with their own two hands, right? And plant mm-hmm. their gardens, right? These were like Germany's yeah. um, kind of um, young it's pioneers.
0: Wild um, gar- wild gardening is how you describe it, I think. And, I mean, right, I, exactly. I, I, I see this in Berlin today, but in a very different context. Um,
1: Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know. So there's this whole um, literature um, of, and you know, these are the kinds of sources that you always have to read with a grain of salt, but it's kind of interesting that these articles are there nonetheless, right? In 1872, in um, especially, there's this kind of burst of magazine and newspaper coverage um, in kind of You know, middle-class illustrated magazines um, that really mythologize these shanty towns on the edge of Berlin as these frontier spaces. And one of my arguments, right, is that the kind of middle-class urbanites who would have been reading um, these magazines like Gartenlaube and so on, they would have been very familiar with frontier literature, with the kind of coverage of the American West, say, and German pioneers all over the world, German immigrants all over the world, that they would have Mm -hmm. also read in the pages of the same um, magazines. Uh, and, uh, so this was a real attempt to kind of mythologize, um, Berlin's urban growth and to place it in the same kind of geographic landscape as, um, uh, you know, the, say, American frontier, um, and, uh, You know that was obviously a problematic romanticization. It meant pasting over, um, in many cases, the you know the real want um, uh, that these um, spaces evidenced, and the fact that there really was no adequate housing um, in Berlin. But I think reflects a real thirst um, in this uh, population of especially urban boosters and reformers. Um, for, um, you know, people, you asked for people, right? So people like Julius Faucher, um, yeah. who was a prominent um, kind of housing reformer and, and economist um, who, who was, re- you know, really um, celebrated. He was the one who anticipated that one day Berlin's suburbs would be um, indistinguishable from Dresden's, right? So he was one of these mm, housing reformers right, who right. really um, celebrated urban growth in that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, lo- I love you know also how you connect in in the chapter called the Shanty Town Frontier, which you know is based on a, an article you wrote too, um, with the German settler diaspora. I, I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by this, you know, having um, been a person obsessed with maps and cartography and the Burgertum, you know, sort of burgerliche mentality. Um, could you say a few words about what the connection is between? let's say German colonial settlement, settlement, migration, and of course, the frontier spaces that become replicated in the United States. Is it just in New York? I mean, are these sort of like, you know, ideas for for German Midwestern settlement that you see in parallel or, or reflected by the mid to late 19th century, you know, sort of aspirational migrant class, for lack of a better word? How I mean, how do you see that that sort of history of of, of German colonialism and especially ger- German settler colonialism spread in the global context?
1: Yeah, this is this is really interesting that there are these sort of common. Um... Uh, I'd say like spatial patterns which connect uh, the German global diaspora with German um, urban uh, growth at home, right? There are these kind of common structures and ideas about space, about the German attachment to gardens, for example, um, that connect um, German diaspora settlements with um, you know, the edges of German cities um, back in the German empire. Um, And, and, you know, what I found, and I think this is probably a a more familiar story, right, is that the sort of imagining of that um, German uh, settler experience overseas um, really shaped how Germans saw the space of their own cities. And this can be seen in, in really direct ways, like the fact that shanty towns and other Urban peripheral settlements were um, frequently called things like Little America in um, yeah. Little Americas uh, in in kind of popular saying. Um, and this was also true of the colonial landscape as well, right? So there were also cities all over Germany in the 1880s with um, work, especially working class neighborhoods on the urban edge that were referred to as New Cameroons or Little Cameroons, right? So there were these mm. global geographies that were reflected back in on the urban um, landscape, um, uh, throughout, um, throughout, uh, Germany. But I, I do think that's what, I mean, one, one important thing to distinguish here is that I think often, um, when it comes to understanding, uh, you know the experience of cities like Berlin or Leipzig or, or Oldenburg or the you know German cities is that it often was kind of imagined um, experiences of German migration mediated by magazine literature or by popular fiction and not actual experiences of, of German migration.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: although there were also these connections, you know, through letter writing and, and other things um, yeah,
0: between I, the I, I, communities. I, I'm sorry, I wanted, didn't want to interrupt you, but I wanted to ask you about that because I'm wondering what they're reading. You know, I think of Karl May and I I think of like, you know, um, Freitag and and others. But for your audience, for those who are sort of expanding beyond the urban frontier, and it might include migration, is it popular, you know, sort of like magazines? Is is it an idea of of America or of African settlement or whatever? You know, how does that factor into your your idea of the moral and sort of economic um, frontier zone, was that something that you were looking for as you were exploring sources in these cities and towns?
1: Yeah, this came up um, especially in Berlin, where I saw, um, particularly in descriptions and coverage of the shanty towns, um, that there were actually explicit references to um, popular uh, fiction about the American frontier and especially the Gold Rush. Right, so there were references mm. to Gold Rush novels um, in the descriptions of the of the shanty towns. So that was a case where it was really explicit. In other cases. Um, Um, There was, you know, popular travel literature played some role. So um, travel descriptions, and not just of um, the Americas, but also um, uh, in in the German Northwest, there was this real fascination with the steppe um, and... um, Russian landscapes as well. So there were, you know, depending on where you were, it was different landscapes, um, but travel literature um, played a role as well. And then Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there were this sort of popular um, magazines, especially when it came to um, uh, sort of Germany's colonies uh, and and later in the century. Um, That's, that's, I think, you know, this all provided a kind of set of, of images and reference points for understanding the place of, um, German cities in a global landscape.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've, you've got some of these frontier dramas I should mention for, for readers and, you know, novels about the Eastern marshes. I think Clara Wiebig is one of your examples. Could you, could you explain that? I mean, for those readers who are not familiar with Divorff and Toren, what, what is it? I mean, how, how do these sort of dramas, I guess I would call them mellow dramas, then factor into this this idea of settling landscapes. I guess it's really a colonial mentality, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, so, and and one thing I found really interesting is there are these these novelists um, like Gustav Freitag and like Clara Vibig, who are perhaps better known for their work on. Um, German uh, settlements, sort of eastward expansion settlement in Polish areas, right? So um, both WBIG and and Freitag. Um, But they also wrote books about... um, Sort of urban expansion and um, the the kind of edge of the city. So VBIG's um, 1910 novel, um, "Those Outside the Gates," um, is really about Berlin's expansion um, and about what happens to a suburban um, settlement as it becomes kind of amalgamated into the city um, and about the law. You know, it becomes um, kind of synonymous with the loss of any sense of of um, kind of moral boundaries. This also shows up in um, mm-hmm. the novels of. Theodore Fontana. Sure. Um, uh, where um, you know he kind of contemplates. You always have to pay lots of attention in Fontana novels to where in the city something happens, right? Because if it happens in the suburbs, it's probably a mistake, right? He's always <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's always that. very aware of kind of where his characters are in relation to actually the city walls and gates, right? And he'll often narrate like the sort of mm. exit and entry into the city, um, whether that's Berlin or whether it's um, uh, Bremen and 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 so on. Um,
0: yeah. That- uh, that's yeah. a great point. I, had, I didn't think of it that way, because it really is a, this moment of transgression, passing in, passing out. You know, it's a permeable frontier, I guess, but it's a moment of anxiety um, as you're describing it. I, I, I've got to ask you, because I know, you know, with all of the the richness of this book, um, if you could say a few words about environmental history and in German, environmental history and maybe historiography. So... You know um i as a as a person who studies maps i think about gerrymandering as well as you know like preservation what what are some of the conservation i should say what what are some of the bigger issues that that maybe readers and listeners can tease out of your book for um, studying the german environmental past
1: yeah, so in the environmental themes in this book were themes um, that I didn't start with, right? I started looking at the urban border and I found, right, that it was impossible to do that without considering questions of environment and nature. It just kept popping up in my sources and in the questions um, that I found myself um, confronting for each of my cities. And there were a couple different ways in which this came up that I think are really unique to um, studying the urban edge or the urban frontier. And one is the way in which ideas of nature and con- conservation um, really emerged alongside um, uh, a kind of naturalization of the historical city Um and uh, the, the way in which over the course of the 19th century, the historical city and its boundaries itself became subsumed in an idea of um, a natural landscape. Um, and uh, often urban preservation, historical preservation, and natural preservation emerged side by side um, in, in the, the German uh, context. And this is something um, that has come out of the work of German environmental historians like um, Thomas Lincoln, for example um, uh, and um, i was uh um really kind of interested in making sure that um those the stories of those um landscapes those, those distinctive environments were part of the story of urban expansion as well um and uh to see how the limits on Um, historical uh, or sort of the limits on the historical city were connected to um, these, uh, kind of distinctive local environments. Um, and I, I was thinking there also of, of the work of someone like Dorothea Brantz, who's looked at mm, sort of the changed right. relationship, sort of complicating our understanding of the relationship between, um, the city and nature and, 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 you know, not just looking at, um, kind of parks and trees when we're thinking about nature in the city, but thinking about the ways in which, for example, infrastructure, um, is, is embedded in, um, the shape of, a uh, the infrastructures kind of connects um, the environmental uh, conditions of, of a city with um, its yeah. built landscape and identity.
0: I, I, I'm, interesting. I'm interested in, and in I have to ask this um, of you as a German historian, if you could maybe say a few words about the connection between scholarship on German colonialism and imperialism. I know this is such a huge debate and it's impossible yeah. to answer in, in one sentence, but you know, Again, you know, toward the end of your book on, on urban histories and national futures, you have these very interesting passages um, talking about Cameroon and Tanzania and, and so forth, overseas colonies. And then as Kristen Kopp and others have done, speaking about, you know, Germanization in the East, Danzig, Gdansk, Poznan, and so forth. So, you know, what, what do you see as, as your contribution to that debate with your book? Um, I, I certainly see this in the defortification issue, but maybe without putting words in your mouth. What what do you think our readers could get?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that um, urban expansion and the idea of defortification and urban growth um, became one available framework for understanding Germanization uh, and this is most clear I think um, in Posen potsnan where you see very explicitly um, the language of urban progress linked to um, a language of uh, Germanization um, and uh, you know I think there's been a lot of attention to um, to uh, kind of the rural in understanding those um, spatial, mm colonial relationships and germanization in the east but that this was also a framework um uh for for urbanization uh and you can see there how um germanization um uh kind of discourses were connected to these broader, they were sort of given legitimacy by their mm-hmm. connection to um, this broader understanding of urban progress, of urbanization, of modernizing um, the city. And, and again, in the case of Poznań, putznan these were um, kind of used very explicitly um, to justify Germanization.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And I mean, I know you mentioned Catherine Siancia's work on, on Polish history. So I think there's a lot more to, to be done and thinking about this yeah. as a civilization discourse or maybe even civilization mission from the 19th century in, in provincial regions on the scale of small towns and, and so forth. So I've got to ask, could you recommend maybe two or three uh, other books, other authors? And we've talked a lot um, and name dropped a lot, uh, yeah. but others, you know, that you're reading or that you might be interested in contemporary work on urban history and landscape and German studies.
1: Um, I know, yeah, so I, I'm actually, I'm just, I'll mention the book I'm reading right now because I'm really enjoying it, um, which is Brian Ladd's new book, The Streets of Europe. Um, and I really love it. So it, it, in a way, it's sort of a, a survey of um, the 18th, 19th century European city, but seen very explicitly through um, the, the kind of built structures and imagining of um, Europe's streets. And I love it because of the way he connects some kind of cultural history and physical environments um, in in a way um, that I've also tried to do in some of my writing. It's just a tremendously um, fun read, and it it also it offers this kind of gentle provocation against um, the temptation to romanticize cities of the past in a way that I I um, I really love. Um, at the and I I guess also. Um, uh, if I could mention a book actually outside of um, of European history, but which I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, which is Bathsheba Demut's Floating Coast, um, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait, um, which has just um, really changed how I think about constructing historical narrative um, and how she um, uh, connects um, the perspective of different, also different species, um, and, um, thinks about the connection between different scales and, um, of experience in both space and time. It's one of those books that's really made me step back and rethink how I, how I think about, um, sort of constructing historical narratives.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Beth Shiba was one of my inspirations. It's one of the first podcast interviews I ever oh, did. Wow. So, yeah. um, I number two, maybe I, I back yeah. in 2019. It's such a brilliant book. Um, thank you for for those references. I haven't read Brian Ladd and I, I hope to do that. Uh, so um, the last question for you, Kristen Pauling, since we've been talking about built environments and, and Germany's urban frontiers, if you could talk about your current work or current projects, I think, our listeners would love to hear that
1: yeah so as i sort of like everybody else i'm eagerly anxiously awaiting for libraries and archives to to open up um a bit more There are kind of two projects that i've been um working on and and one is a, a project i've been thinking about for a really long time and um I'm finally kind of jumping into and this is a project on the transatlantic history of the playground in german and american cities um and it's, this is a, a project that it's kind of shocking that I, I don't think there is really a book that does this, but, um, you know, the sort of sociality and um, children, the way children move around cities is so different in Germany and the United States. As someone who's traveled with my children to German cities this is really evident to me. And yet there are actually all these connections between um, Germany and the United States in the history of playgrounds, whether it's from like the importation of the German Zondgarten from Berlin to Boston in the 1880s to the sort of transatlantic adventure playground movement. Um, there are all these kind of projects and connections um, between um, the cultures of kind of uh, urban space, nature, politics, um, and actually kind of wildness um, in that children are always a little wild, right? And so they're uncontrollable in the city. So it gets at a lot of these themes about um, kind of transatlantic connections and urban space and nature and, and so on, um, but in a new um, kind wow. of a new environment. So that's, I, that's what I'm thinking
0: I never would have thought, well, I mean, maybe I th- I should think about it in terms of zoning and Gerrymandering and inclusion and exclusion and in, in cities—that's a brilliant idea. Um, I, I wonder how. Like, can I just ask a really quick follow-up? How how would you how would you do your felon critique with that? I mean, wh- what sources would you use for something like that?
1: So there are in in both Germany and the United States there are these um, associations uh, like playground associations. Um, so I and then there are particular cities um, that uh, um, play a particularly important role in the kind of origin of of playgrounds. So Detroit, Boston. Um, Uh, Berlin, Minneapolis, right? So, um, you know, there can be an actually in a similar way, I guess, to to my last book, there can be um, these kind of local stories about the emergence of, of, you know, decisions about playground planning. But then also there are these um, um, kind of national uh, structures and organizations that advocate for reform and new understanding of, of urban space, like the Playground Association of America.
0: Sure. Yeah, bound, <clears throat> bounded and unbounded frontiers. I think right. Um. Thank you so much, Kristen Pauling, for for joining us. Um. I have been talking here with author Kristen Pauling. Her new book is Germany's Urban Frontiers: Nature and History on the Edge of the Nineteenth Century German. Uh, sorry, and the Edge of the 19th Century City, published by University of Pittsburgh Press 2020, uh, here on NewBooks Network and the channels NewBooks German Studies, NewBooks History, NewBooks Urban. Kristen, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation and I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast today.
1: Yes, thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you very much.
0: And I'm your host, Steven Siegel. Until next time.